notes there to pass out if you'd like to follow along on an outline. But if you would, please take your Bibles and go to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to go back to the book of Ecclesiastes and we'll be spending our time at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It's been good to be with you all today. Uh, over the last year, I've seen some of you at uh, it was a graduation party, uh, there was a wedding at camp. Um, wedding wasn't in camp, but I saw some of you at camp. Uh, but it's good to see all of you together also and to be with you again on, on this day. So thank you again to Pastor Housetubber and Pastor McClain for asking me to come and preach to you. I'm thankful for the opportunity. I view as the privilege. Um, also just wanted to say thank you for singing uh, Rejoice, the Lord is King. You know, this morning we, we looked at those two concepts from the book of Ecclesiastes, Fear and Joy, and uh, at our church in Menor as I have preached through the book of Ecclesiastes, that is the one hymn that I've come back to uh, multiple times, over and over again, sort of, sort of as a hymn that not only talks about what Solomon is talking about in Ecclesiastes, but also what the rest of the Bible would add to it in terms of joy and how it is we are to live in this life and ultimately what it is that we're, we're looking forward to, what motivates us in the way in which we live. And so it's very good to be able to sing that song right there. But uh, you've opened up to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. You see there at the top of the outline, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 4 through 16. And really the, the thought or concept that I wanted to start off with is a, a saying that I can't trace back to where it actually started. And you may or may not have heard it before, but it's a saying that, that goes that everyone is a theologian. Everyone is a theologian. Uh, whether you're saved or not, whether you've gone to college or not, whether you study the Bible or not, Everyone has some kind of concept or thoughts about God. Uh, again, you could be a child, you could be older, you might never have read the Bible, but even Romans 1 tells us that everyone is without excuse in at least being able to, to see the power of God in creation around us. And so everyone is a theologian. And those concepts or notions or thoughts about God are what actually drive us in our everyday life. They're what motivate us in the, the common things that we do on a, on a daily basis. And so as we grow and, and uh, learn in our theology and the things that we do on a daily basis as God's child, as God's children, will reflect that growth of knowledge. And the reason I, I bring up that phrase, the fact that we are all theologians, is I believe in, in uh, Ecclesiastes 4 and 5 here, Solomon is, is drawing our minds to common areas of life, common areas of life where in chapter 3 he has talked about big concepts of theology, but now in chapters 4 and 5 he will take those big concepts and bring them down into very, some very uh, practical, some people might call even mundane areas of life, but even in these mundane areas of life, uh, we need to remember that it's God who is behind them all, and as his children we should seek to live them out in a way that, that honors and glorifies him. And so at, uh, in chapter 3, the two areas of theology that Solomon talks about are the fact that God is sovereign in control of all of time, and the fact that God is just, and he is the perfect judge. At the beginning of chapter 3, there is that famous poem that is perhaps the you know, most famous section of Ecclesiastes that everyone seems to know, possibly. You know, to, to everyone, there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die. It's a time to plant, a time to, to read. And the point of that poem is not to get us to try to like, 
figure out what area of life we're in, but the point of the poem is to realize that God is the one who's in control of those seasons of our life, and so he is sovereign. But then Solomon turns our eyes to the justice system. That, you know, in all of the justice systems throughout all of time, all of eternity, uh, all of the justice systems that are around now, there's only one person in all of those justice systems who has ever and will in the future judge correctly, and that is God himself, because all of our justice systems are made up with, you know, people who are sinners, and it's not that there aren't believers there, but ultimately Solomon's turning our mind back to the fact that even though we experience injustices at various times throughout life, we can look forward to the future knowing that God is the one who is going to set everything right in his time, and it's not up to us to get him to, to, uh, to do what is right in our time. It's up to us to, as the definition of joy, joy says, to, to have trust and contentment and hope in him, knowing that he will make it work out right in the end. But so Solomon takes those, those, those two concepts of theology, sovereignty and righteousness, and turns to mundane areas of life to help us understand how those big areas of theology can help us live our, our everyday lives. Uh, remember, again, this morning, Solomon sought to use delightful words memorable phrases and these uh, this whole section chapters three four and five is in between two two of those calls by solomon to find joy in life uh, at the end of chapter two and at the end of chapter five he calls us to find joy in life in the everyday things of life that god gives us uh, food and clothes and family and and work um, and work is the area of life that it is that we're going to uh, look at today, that we're going to look at tonight. How is it that we're able to find joy in the work that God has given us to do? And so I've titled the sermon tonight, Finding Joy in a Possibly Unexpected Place, Finding Joy in an Unexpected Place, because my guess is that if you were to survey people in general, work work is not generally the place that they would think of as, as an area that they find joy in. But Solomon is going to tell us how we can find joy in an unexpected place and that that's in work. Um, and it's, I, I use the word possibly there because it, it could be that you do find joy in your work. And what you're going to hear from Solomon in, these, in, in this section is anything new, but it's a good reminder that work is still an area of our life that God is in control in. And when we look at it in a way that is within his boundaries, um, when we uh, use, the thing that, use the things that he has given us per pertaining to work or what we get as a result from work in the way that he has established, we're able to glorify him and find joy in even this area that some people might not be able to find it. So let's, uh, let's start reading in verse four uh, to see what Solomon has to say for us about finding joy in this unexpected place. Uh, verse four, I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hand and consumes his own flesh. One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never stopped to ask, for whom am I laboring, laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity and a grievous task. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. 
but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A, three, a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king and who no longer knows how to receive instruction, for he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun throng, throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were to come before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Uh, before we look closer at these at these verses, it is uh, important just to, to step back and think about the fact that work is not just something that we do uh, to receive a paycheck. You know, work is not just what we do when we go to work and, you know, punch a time card or uh, however it is that you log your time in today. It's not just the thing that we do uh, that we get paid for. Ultimately, we all work and we all work every day. Now, some of you might be retired and you don't actually go to work anymore, but you might say that you find yourself to be busier with work now than you ever were before when you actually went to work. Uh, some of you don't go to work to receive a, a paycheck, but you have uh, kids in the house, and so there will always be work to do, always, in terms of cleaning up and uh, chores and making meals and washing clothes and folding clothes and putting things away. So again, you might not go to work to get paid, but there's always work uh, there's always work to be done. You might volunteer around here. You might volunteer somewhere uh, in town. That's work. We all work. We all work every day. And Solomon's going to tell us how we can go about that work in a way that pleases God and in a way in which we can receive the joy that, want, that God wants us to have out of that work. Uh, you're, a, you're a student. Uh, you have work to do in terms of homework and reading and studying for tests. That's work also. And it may be hard to believe, but even when you're in school, you can find joy in your schoolwork. Uh, it is important to remember that, that work is not a result of the fall. Uh, work is not bad in and of itself. Work didn't come about as a result of sin. Uh, rather, toil and difficulty in work came about as a result of sin. Adam worked before he ever sinned. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, he was given the garden to tend, to take care of. He was a farmer, but also at first he was a biologist, a scientist. The animals came in front of him and he, he ordered and arranged them. He named them. So there was work before there was the fall. But once sin came into the work, but once sin came into the world, so also toil and pain came into work. But even in the midst of that kind of consequence as a result of sin applying to work, we can still find enjoyment in the work that God has given us to do. And the, the uh, Solomon here is going to paint for us uh, three portraits, three pictures of both uh, something that would rob us of joy in our work and a way in which we can look at work and receive joy from our work. And in each of these portraits, he puts the same three ingredients in them, uh, just that they're not always in the same order and the portraits are not always the same size. One is larger, a couple of them are smaller. But in each of these uh, three portraits, we'll see that there is something that Solomon observes and he wants us to see and observe that also. There's something that he compares, and again, he's going to use the word better to show that there is some gain or advantage to 
not doing it one way and instead doing it another way. And then as a result of that, there's going to be something that we are to avoid, um, that which actually robs us of joy in our work. The first portrait that I see Solomon painting for us is a portrait that I call grasping or content. Grasping or content. And that's in verses four through six. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hand and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. And so you see there at the uh, right away, beginning of verse four, he, he tells us what he sees, what he has observed, what he has considered. And what he's looking at is labor and skill that is driven uh, by envy, by jealousy. Uh, the first image that we're presented with is that of a worker who is driven by a desire that, that can't be satisfied. Uh, this worker has a desire to always have more than the, the person next to them. He has a desire that can never be put to rest. One translation puts this uh, verse in this way. Uh, it says, then I observe that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is, is meaningless like chasing the wind. Uh, the person in this picture is always grasping after things that others have, whether it's possessions or money or looks or popularity or grades, you know, someone else has it and they want it. Uh, that is envy. And that's why Solomon calls it chasing after the wind because they will never be able to get it. In Proverbs 14, Solomon, uh, referring to envy, says that a tranquil spirit revives the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. And in chapter 27, he goes on to say, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Work that is motivated by envy eats away inside of each of us so that we can't be happy when someone else succeeds. Uh, especially if they might succeed at something that, that we wanted or we wanted to get before they did. Envy robs us of, of joy in work. And Solomon observed that kind of worker. Ultimately, envy is contrary to true biblical wisdom. In James, uh, in James 3, he tells us that if you have bitter jealousy and selfishness in your hearts, uh, it leads us to, to boast. It leads us to tell lies. And that kind of life, that is not the wisdom that comes ab from above, but is actually earthly, natural, and demonic. And so Solomon wants to turn our attention away from work that is motivated by envy and instead uh, turn our eyes onto work that is motivated uh, by others. And he does that by using the word um, uh, better. And so in verse six, we're going to jump over five, verse five for a second, go to verse six, one handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and, and striving after win. And so notice that word better in verse six. Um, if we're going to put two things on, on either side of a scale, quietness, contentment, um, not grasping after things, and on the other side, we're going to put that envy or grasping that can never be satisfied. This side of being content will always be more valuable. No matter how much manic busyness you use your time for, no matter how much grasping you do to reach after the things that others have, there's no amount of stuff that you can get to put on that scale that might make those two things equal in any way. 
Uh, when we think about the picture of grasping or content, the way in which we find joy in work is by being content with what God has given us. Um, when Paul wrote in Philippians chapter four, uh, the, the verse that, that we probably remember and have seen it used in multiple contexts, it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, do you remember what context it was that Paul was talking about to saying that to say that Christ was helping him to um, to do it? it? It was contentedness. It was the ability to be content. No matter whether Paul was abounding or being brought low, he could experience plenty or hunger, abundance or need because of his con connection to Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Christ ultimately delivers us from the sin of envy, the sin of grasping after what others have and places within us that contentedness with what God has given us. But in verse five, ultimately what Solomon is doing is anticipating a possible response to this instruction. You know, if, if, there's, if, if, if all of work is just driven by envy and greed, then why should I work at all? So, you know, someone might incorrectly assume, well, then I just might not even work at all. And, and that he calls that person in verse five, a fool. Um, that would be called, so what it is that we're to avoid in this portrait is laziness. And uh, Solomon very picturesquely, perhaps graphically, describes a person who is lazy. The fool folds his hand. He consumes his own flesh. Laziness leads us to a place where uh, all we would have to eat is, is our, own, our own hands, our own flesh. We can't work for ourselves. We don't have the ability to provide for ourselves. So we still are to work. Um, Solomon is just getting at the motivations behind our work. It's not to be envy or greed. It's rather to be uh, contentedness to enjoy what it is that God has, has given us. And so Jesus frees his children from, from the sin known as envy. Envy is a sin, not just because it robs us of joy that God has intended for us, but ultimately when we think about that theology of the fact that God is sovereign, we're, we're telling God that his control of our life just, just wasn't right. It wasn't he, that he got it somehow wrong. What someone else has is what I should have. And so our theology would, would a correct theology would drive us to be content with the work and the things that come from our work that God has given us to do. So that's the portrait of being of uh, the portrait that I've called grasping or content, grasping or content. The next picture in verses seven through 12, I've summarized with the phrase me or we me or we. And when we look at this picture, we see someone who ultimately is only looking for themselves, only working for themselves, looking out for how they can benefit themselves with the, with the things that they gain from their work. And we notice that Solomon has turned to look at another portrait because he uses this word looked here or observe or consider. Again, in verse seven, it says, then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There's some sort of, you know, puzzle or emptiness that's going on here in this earth. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches. He never asked, never stopped and asked himself, for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is, is vanity. It is a grievous task. Um, a person who would fit into this category, someone who has a list of goals that they want to accomplish, uh, whatever kind of work that they're spending their time working at, but ultimately those goals are only for their, uh, for, for their own benefit. They're, they're working 
for themselves. And Solomon is telling us that, that we will never find joy in our work when our work exists only for our own benefit. James says that also in chapter four, when he says you desire and have not, you murder and envy and you cannot obtain, you quarrel and fight, you do not have because you do not ask, you ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly so that you can uh, spend it on your own, so that you can spend it on your own passions. And that kind of life is what James calls actually friendship with the world. But notice here in this section, Solomon never says that work in and of itself is wrong. Uh, the money that we get from self, the, the money that we get from work is never wrong. It's, it's the motivation behind why we're working. Uh, one chapter over in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, Solomon says, the one who loves money will never be satisfied with money. He who loves wealth will never be satisfied with its income. So it's not money that's bad, rather the love of money. And when we love money, we're never satisfied with it. Uh, when I think of, of this picture, the person that I might see, or the, the he's not really a person, but the, the thing that I see in this person, in this picture is that of the Grinch. You know, he sits up there on the hill, he looks down, um, he can't enjoy what, um, uh, what, is, what is going on down there because everything in his life has been about me. He's got this twisted look on his face uh, and no amount of uh, working for myself will ever get to the place where we find uh, joy in this life. But what does help us to find joy in this life and the work that he's given us to do is when we turn our attention to verse nine and we see the word better there, Solomon's going to turn our attention to something's better that's working for me. And in verse nine, he says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Uh, Philippians chapter two says, have this mind in you. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each one of you should, in humility, be motivated to treat one another as more important than yourselves. Each of you should be concerned not only with your own interests, but with the, other, with the interest of others as well. And ultimately, Christ is the example of that. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So again, when we look to Christ, we recognize that he is the perfect example of how even when it comes to work, something that we all have to do, we can look at it in a way that is Christ-like. And ultimately Solomon says, we find joy in our work when we do that. Uh, we, we rob ourselves of of joy in work when we are working only for ourselves. And now notice that here, uh, Solomon has illustrated this we option of this portrait in three different ways. The, the first one, uh, it, it just points out that it, there is a general rule that two can get more done together when they work than two when they are separated in work. And it says two are better than one because they have a, a good return for their labor. 
If either of them falls, one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is, is not another to lift him up. So he's using this example from work of two being able to get more done uh, or being there to help someone when someone falls uh, to show us that there is benefit to looking at life and the work that we're given to do in a, in a we sort of option, not a me sort of option. So two is better than one doesn't mean that in everything that we do and everything that we work at, we have to have someone along with us just as a general rule. It's better to have two than just one. Uh, the second thing he points out is, is, uh, is drawing, uh, drawing to mind someone who's traveling back during Solomon's time. It says, furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Uh, you know, back in uh, Solomon's time, uh, you weren't able to string together uh, whatever it is your favorite uh, hotel rewards points are, you know, to go from hotel to hotel to hotel as you're traveling through a desert, rather you would get as far as you could that day and then you had to set up camp. And uh, in the desert, it's cold at night. And so if two are traveling together, they're able to stay warm as they're sleeping rather than trying to stay warm by, by, by sleeping on your own. Uh, there's nothing sinful or immoral in this picture. It's just pointing out a rather general truth that when you have another person along with you, you're going to be warmer when it's cold outside. And so two, again, are better than one. And the, the third illustration that he uses is someone that who's, who's on their own, who gets um, attacked, uh, can't defend himself, but yet if he had someone else who's there with him, he would be able to defend himself. Uh, verse 12, if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. You think about the uh, Good Samaritan coming upon that um, Coming upon that man who had been robbed and beaten, that man was able to be robbed and beaten and thrown in the ditch because he was on his own. Uh, ultimately, we all would like to think of ourselves as the one who would be able to defend himself against anyone who, who would attack, whether it's two or three or four or five. But as a general rule, uh, one will get defeated by two, but three are even better. And so when we compare these things, we see that, it, that we find joy in our work when we are working for other people, not just ourselves. And so ultimately what it is that we are to avoid is, is isolation or always finding a way that, 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 that we are just kept to ourselves. Now, I know we've just come through a period of COVID and there were times where isolation was necessary. But again, as a general rule of life, we need people around us to be able to help us uh, uh, grow in grace, uh, be a part of the body. Second uh, Corinthians 1 says that uh, God comforts us so that we can comfort other people. And so ultimately, we're robbed of joy when we just keep to ourselves and there's ex excessive me time. But we can have joy in our work in the life that God has given us to do when we look at work through a lens of we rather than a lens of me. The third picture that Solomon paints for us in verses 13 through the end of the chapter is uh, a little harder to see, I will admit. And even as I read through it in uh, the New American Standard Bible, if you have a different version, there were probably some words in there were, that, that were a little different. But by looking for these key words of observing and comparing and avoiding, we can still see what it is that Solomon is trying to teach us about work. Uh, he does change the order a bit. Um, but in this picture, he is considering someone whose work is motivated by 
popularity, by the desire to be liked. This is someone whose motivation for work is simply the, uh, the attention of others. That is, I want people to look at me. I want people to like me. I want to have a large group of followers. And a person like this ultimately will do pretty much anything that it takes to stay in that position of power. Um, but the problem that Solomon brings up with this outlook on work is that popularity is fleeting. And so if that is what's driving us in work, then joy will never come because we'll never hit that target that it is that we're aiming for. Uh, let's look at verses 13 through 16 again. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction, for he has come out of prison to become a king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. And so now this is, and now we see, come to the word, observe, or what Solomon has seen. I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before him, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. For this too is vanity and striving after winning. So we see someone who at one point had throngs of people following him, but because he was really working only for popularity, that popularity went away. They were not happy with him anymore. And Solomon calls this a vanity or a striving after wind. Um, back in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter one, uh, in verse 11, this is one of the uh, characteristics of life that leads Solomon to describe life as a frustrating puzzle. He says, no one remembers the former events, nor will anyone remember the events that are yet to happen. They will not be remembered by future generations. If we're working uh, for the benefit of being remembered, we're working for something that will never give us joy in the work that God has given us to do. Popularity and fame, you know, no matter how large they are, uh, no matter who it is that they're bestowed on, they're fleeting, they're momentary, uh, they're temporary. But the better way that Solomon points out for us is in verse 13, and that is the way of wisdom. Verse 13, a poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. And so the better way is wisdom. And we're told by, by Solomon that fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. And so we know that fearing God is not a guarantee that we will ever be popular, but it is the beginning of wisdom. When we think about wisdom, when we think about the ability to be able to take what God has spoken to us in his word and apply it skillfully to the areas of life in which we live, that's wisdom. And that on the scale of better than will always be better than any kind of popularity or fame, no matter how large or popularity that fame might be. And the, uh, uh, again, this, this person who at one point had popularity and fame is described as someone who at one point was in prison. He came out of prison. He became a king. He had been born poor in his kingdom. So he, he truly was a rag to riches story, a, a true American dream success story. But his problem was that as he gained that popularity, he lost any kind of connection to wisdom. Uh, if you think of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he was a perfect picture of this. Now, obviously, I think Solomon wrote the book, and so he was writing before Rehoboam came along, but Rehoboam was a perfect example of this kind of foolish ruler. He received the kingdom from Solomon after Solomon passed away, 
He sought wisdom from Solomon's advisors, Solomon's counselors, about how it was that he should run the kingdom. Uh, He was asked by the people that he governed to, you know, lessen the burden that Solomon had placed on them. Those older wise men told Rehoboam, yeah, go ahead, lessen the burden that your father put on them. Solomon instead listened to his young advisors, those who gave him foolish instruction, and rather than lessening the burden, he said, my father Solomon disciplined you with whips, I'm going to discipline you with with scorpions. And as a result of that, Rehoboam ended up with only one tribe, the southern kingdom, a tribe of Judah, and the rest left and went north with Jeroboam. And so we can see what Solomon is, is talking about here, even in the life of Rehoboam. He left the path of wisdom. He had no joy in work, and ultimately the kingdom was ripped apart and, um, and, and given to someone else. And so ultimately what it is that we are to avoid is focusing on, on, on the here and now, focusing on that which is fleeting, focusing on that which has no eternal benefit. Again, thinking about right theology, the fact that God is sovereign and that he is a just God teaches us that as believers, we're ultimately just pilgrims and strangers here in this earth. We're, we're moving through our temporary resting place. Our ultimate home is heaven. And so to the extent that any of us is able to invest the gospel in the lives of the people around us, that's where we will find that we are working for that which is lasting. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all going to be full-time gospel ministers. Not all of us are called to do that. But in whatever job or work it is that God has has given us to do, uh, he will also give us a way to be able to share the gospel in that place, because it's only through the gospel then that anything lasting will come about as a result of the work that, that, that he's given us to do. Another way that we can see this being carried about in, in our day and age is, is in the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, um, Paul uses the picture of a, of, a, of a human body as a picture for the church. And we recognize that in any local church, everyone has come together from different backgrounds, uh, different uh, walks of life. But God in his sovereignty has placed us all in one place at a certain time. He's given us different gifts to be able to use to, to strengthen that body. And as we focus on depending on him for those gifts and putting those gifts into practice, we see that there is lasting and eternal, there are lasting and eternal benefits that, that come about as the result of that. And so God will help us to be able to evaluate the things that we spend our time on, whether it is that we're working for something that's fleeting, whether it is that we're working for something that's, that's lasting so that we can avoid spending time on, on that, which, which so that we can avoid spending unnecessary time on that which which doesn't last. So when we look at the picture of grasping or content uh, and think about the concept of joy, it is we do need to remember that we need to be content with what God has given us. There will be no joy in our work when we're always grasping after that which someone else has that I don't have. When we look at the me or we picture, we see someone who is working only for themselves and will never experience joy in the work that God has given them to do because they can't take their eyes off of themselves. Instead, what's better is to be looking out for others, to be looking for ways in which we can work for others and to avoid isolation that would take us away from that kind of work. 
And when we look at the fleeting or lasting portrait, we see that uh, we need God's help to be able to evaluate, to figure out what it is that we need to spend our time on so that what we are spending time on is lasting and eternal and not fleeting. And remember this morning when I first defined joy, I said that it is something that, that Jesus prays for his followers to have. It's something that God the Son wants his followers to have. It's something that God the Spirit puts into the lives of God's children through the fruit of the Spirit. And it's, it's something that God the Father gives us when we realize uh, in James that I read this morning that we are to count as all joy every event of life that the sovereign God leads us through. Um, when we recognize that, that God, the, the three in one, God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit are all involved in this, this project of his, of God's children having joy. Uh, we, we recognize that we can come to his word and find out how it is possible that even in this mundane area of work, no matter how small it is, no matter how big it is, we're able to have joy when we look at work in a way that is within the boundaries that God has set up. When we fear God, even when it is, even in the work that he gives us to do, he, he provides us joy in that work. And so we can depend on him uh, for direction in our work and for joy in our work uh, so that we don't come to a point at the end of our lives and realize that, that, that we missed it you know, even as Solomon did at various points in his life. Uh, but we can use these memorable words, these words that drive us along in the right direction uh, to move us away from that which it is that we are to avoid and instead towards that which is, that which is better uh, in, in respect to the work that God has given us to do. Let's close in prayer. Dear God, thank you that you are involved in our lives. And it's not just that you are involved in our lives, but you are in control of them. You are the one who places us in the exact areas that you want us. You put us in the exact times that you want us, and you give us the exact work that you want us to do. Thank you for Jesus, who, was the, who is the perfect example of uh, going through life in a perfect way, of looking out for others, of sacrificing himself. And I recognize that we're able to love you because you first loved us. Help us not only to love you, but also to love others around us, uh, to depend on you for joy in the work that you've given us to do. And to remember that your word uh, will, will never, that you and your word will never leave us or forsake us. We need your help in this week to, to, to live in this way. And we depend on you for that help. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.